Welcome to the AASA PEK Decennial Survey podcast series, where we take a look at a variety of issues affecting school system leadership nationwide. During the first episode of this mini-series, CEO of PDK International, Josh Starr, will be speaking with Drs. Gregory Hutchings and Jen Cheatham on a conversation about race and equity. So I want to welcome everybody to our 2020 AASA Decennial Podcast Series. My name is Josh Starr. I'm the CEO of PDK International, and we worked with AASA this year on the uh, Decennial Survey, which has been going on for, I think, um, almost like 120 years now, and it's just what we wanted to do in this podcast series is tease out some of the really important and interesting questions that have been raised and talk to some folks who have done the work as superintendents in the field and are leaders in the space to get some more insight and, and spark some conversation uh, for about half an hour or so. So I'm very, very pleased uh, that for our first podcast guest, we have um, Jen, uh, Dr. Jen Cheatham, former superintendent of Madison, Wisconsin, who's now a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Dr. Greg Hutchings, who's superintendent of schools in Alexandria, Virginia, was also superintendent of schools in Shaker Heights, Ohio. And this week, we are starting with one of the easiest subjects there is, race and equity, right? Um, <laughs> it certainly permeates so much of what we're doing in schools these days. It was clearly evident in the survey this year. Uh, that it's on people's minds. And I wanted to get together with a couple leaders that I really admire and have, have seen their careers and their work as they've led um, some great systems work um, in, in addressing uh, race and equity issues and just kind of have a conversation about the findings and, and their perspective. So Greg and Jen, uh, welcome um, to the AASA Decennial Podcast Series. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Josh. Glad yeah. to be here. Yeah, well, really glad you're here. So let's just start with kind of the, the beginning sort of stuff, right? The obvious stuff. So we have seen a slight uptick in leaders of color in school districts. We've seen a little more urban areas. We've seen a little more women of color actually are increasing more than men of color. Like, what are you seeing around the country as you work in school districts and with superintendents? What have you seen in your own experience? Like, what, why... Why isn't it increasing as quickly as we'd like to see, and, and what should we be doing about this? So let's just let's just start with that. I think either one of you can go first. So yeah, I say, have you turned on your TV lately? You know, that's the reason why. I mean, look at look at the race relations and issues we have across the country, and that's why you're not really seeing um, people of color in this role. Uh, we don't get the opportunity to have a seat at the table, and. Um, if you don't have people of color at the seat of the table, how are they going to know how to recruit other people of color? <laughs> so you now have white, a white dominated um, group trying to determine how, how do we get more black and brown superintendents and they're not black or brown. So I think that's really the biggest issue. Um, and I think that, you know, the uptick that we're having, <clears throat> which is now like a little over 9%, I mean, a little under 9%. It's, it's still not enough when majority of our public schools across this country are predominantly black and brown. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think that the race relational issue we're having across this country is probably the number one factor. But that's just my two cents. I don't know, Jim, if you want to add something to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you, Greg. The, um, you know, I was taught early on as a leader that the most important thing or one of the most important things you do is field talented teams in this work. It is something you have to put a lot of work into. 
Um, right. So I take this approach, like it actually takes work. You don't just post <laughs> job positions and sit back and wait to see who you get, right. You fill that pool with talent, talented people and you fill it with, uh, with people of color, with diversity, with lived and professional experiences that you need to do these jobs well. So I think that your point is well taken, Greg. I think there are too many leaders out there who are sitting back and saying, well, I don't know, I'm not getting candidates of color in these pools. Well, that's not how it works, right? You have to fill your pools. And I'm telling you, people are out there. I've never had that struggle. We have been able to diversify our principal ranks, our senior leadership team ranks, which was incredibly important to me as a leader. But it t- so, so wait, hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in a little bit here, though. So I'm hearing two things. Greg, on one hand, you're saying it takes leaders of color to recruit leaders of color, right? It's a, that's part of what you said. But Jen, I'm hearing you as a white woman, right? You're saying you were able to do it. So, so let, me tell you, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about that. I think that, you know, Jen has courage. Jen is willing to set, a, to set um, herself aside and even her white privilege aside to say, I know that we have an issue with diversification. So let me get out of my comfort zone and let me push to get people who don't look like me into some of these top, um, top positions. And it is going to take intentional efforts for people like Jen to do that. Our uh, superintendency and our boards across this country are predominantly white. So it's going to re- require people to own up to their white privilege and to kind of put themselves in discomfort yeah. and begin to intentionally recruit. So what I heard Jen talking about was intentionality and uh, really trying to take herself out of her norms and her normal world and say, yeah. hey, I got to go figure out who are people not like me who have the same talent, right? Because, you know, there are three things that come regardless of what color you are. Vision, integrity, and passion. I always say VIP are the top three things to me, right? Vision, integrity, and passion. You can be any color and possess those, but you have to be willing to go out, you know, like Jen has when, when she was superintendent, um, who was an exemplar, let me tell you, as a superintendent across this country, she was intentional about going out and speaking for that. Right. So yeah. Jen, does that ring true? It does ring true. And not, not the part about the exemplar. I've made plenty of mistakes and lots of people will remind <laughs> own me. It, own it. You know. And I, I think, but yeah, I think what my point is, is yes, leaders of color need to be recruiting more leaders of color and the, the movement will build. And white leaders have to get out of their comfort zones. It takes work. Um, it takes building a new sort of network, right, which, in, which gets to Greg's point, right? If you're building your network and, and expanding the talented leaders and future leaders of color, right, that will fill these pools, then it starts to feed itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I would add to that, I learned so much about building teams, but I, I learned just as much uh, and I think the hard way about retaining leaders of color, about building organizations where leaders of color want to stay, right? How um, as a white person, you use your privilege to empower future leaders and leaders of color, how you give up your own power, how you take risks. And sometimes, I mean, unfortunately, we have to protect and defend leaders of color, yeah. which we don't do enough of. I'm hearing 
direct, like a very deliberate kind of approach to saying it's not just enough to say it's important. Like you actually have to be pretty intentional about how you go about it as a white person hiring, right? And then I think it probably fits for leaders of all colors, of all stripes to say, well, what am I doing to retain good talent in particular? What am I doing to make sure that my leaders of color feel comfortable in staying? I will tell you, I, I had an issue when I was in Montgomery County. We did a really, really good job of promoting leaders of color, but many times there wasn't any place else for them to go in the organization. So a job doesn't open up. Another district poaches. Yeah. Like, oh, there's a really good, you know, director. I need an assistant superintendent. I'm like, well, I can't just create assistant superintendent jobs. So all of a sudden they're going somewhere else to be an assistant suit, which, you know, on one hand is great because you, you develop people who go on to do great work. But um, yeah, re- re- retention becomes a critical piece. Yeah. You know, Jen, she just mentioned though about um, how if you can find a way to support and then you also mentioned how do you not only support, but also defend this. And when you begin to support and defend uh, people of color, they'll stay in that principalship <laughs> and work for you until that position opens up. Right. And the reason why they'll do that. And this is this is, I think, the challenge that a lot of particularly our white boards um, and white superintendents. I think this is some of the things that they're lacking. They don't understand at time that um, when people of color and, and leadership roles are attacked. Sometimes people are being attacked because of the color of their skin. It has nothing to do with their skill set. And we get sucked into that, that we begin to believe what the community says. And now that person becomes a bad person who if they had a different color of skin, they would be a superhero. Right? And it's like, so you have to be able to really divide you know, those two things. Is have they made a bad or immoral decision, or is this just white privilege actually coming to surface, mm-hmm. and people are trying to discredit that particular leader of color because they don't like the direction that you know that they may be going into, and that that takes a lot of courage for you know for white leaders and white boards to be able to be able to do that. One thing that I'm fortunate to have is. And our board is predominantly, um, it's almost 50-50. It's a nine-member board of white and black and Hispanic. But I'm fortunate to have unanimously the support of, of our board who are willing to defend me and can see through some of the emails that might come through that are pretty much racist. <laughs> and I mean, they're just flat out racist. I don't know any other word to say. They were flat out racist. So we're going we're to get to the board in a minute, but I want to I wanna sort of pull this thread a little bit. So, so... Hiring people of color is certainly really important, whether you're white, whether you're not, right? One of the challenges though we found in the survey is that some folks don't even think it's that important to talk about issues of diversity, to talk about race. We didn't even mention white privilege and white supremacy and all those kinds of things. I'm sure both of you will. But some folks don't even think it is that important or they don't feel that it's something they're well equipped to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, again, having having a leader that understands the need to diversify their team, diversify, that's one thing. It's necessary, not sufficient. How are we going to get more superintendents to understand that you sh- you cannot be leading if you're not addressing these issues in some way, shape or form? Understanding low context, of course, can sometimes dictate how you do that. What, what do we do about that? Like, what does leadership development look like in that? Jen, we'll, we'll start with you on that because Greg is first. Um, 
I really want to talk about that, Josh, and I have to just stay on the. You're going to answer the question. Won't answer. That's the superintendent. I'm not trying to avoid it. (laughs) I just need to punctuate what Greg just said because I just I've seen it so many times. Leaders of color who are under a microscope Mm -hmm. um, that just would 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 never be scrutinized right, in that way if they were white leaders. And I I love what you said, Greg, being able to talk with your leadership team, your board, and anticipate that, right? Like, this is what it sounds like, looks like, sounds like, feels like, um, when white supremacy, right, is in action, and in in this example, overly scrutinizing a leader of color because they're pushing for change. Like, uh, I think, think this is part of what it looks like. Josh, like, like just us learning how to be more explicit, right, and descriptive, and to stop just using language of equity and diversity and inclusion, but to really talk about um, how racism manifests itself, um, and 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 to, uh, I don't know if we can always do this in a loving and caring way, but in a supportive way, right, in a way where we're learning together. Uh, about how to to name it when we see it, right? So that um, yeah, so that we can move on. I think that's in part how how it looks. So I I imagine that some folks are just that they don't know how to do it in an inviting way. They don't know how to do it in a supportive, loving way. Even if sometimes you just need to call it out, right? But they don't they don't have the skills yeah. to know how to invite people into the conversation. So instead, you just kind of avoid it because you know you want to avoid conflict. I don't Greg, is that is that why people don't talk about it? You know, I think that's one of the reasons why people don't talk about it. I mean, it makes you uncomfortable, right? Yeah. And one thing that I tell um, our, our staff as well as our community, nobody has the right to be comfortable. So you don't you don't have a right to be comfortable. I'm uncomfortable every day as a black man in America. So deal with it. You got to figure out how we're going to work through this. And I think we need to stop sugarcoating everything and making people feel comfortable because it's not a comfortable topic. So let's just be honest that it is going to lean, you're going to have to lean into your discomfort. I also think as you're talking about the professional learning component, we have to start with the historical context. When you get to talk about our history in regards to race, like, I mean, even just talking about the construct of race, (laughs) you know, like, it will allow people to see the similarities from 300 years ago to now mm-hmm. and just, you know, what the world is today. And uh, I think that is how it, you can really get to start the conversation because we're repeating history continuously because we're not willing to really address the past. And, I, you know, I think that, that is, that's where, where, you, where you really need, really need to start. And if you're going on this journey, you know, being an anti-racist or an anti-racist school or anti-racist school division, you're going to have to talk about your historical context. You've been and doing that in Alexandria, Greg, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on. Like, you've actually been pushing on that in, in Alexandria and, and getting folks to be thinking about the history, right? Talk yeah. a little bit about how you yeah. approach that. We have, I mean, first and foremost, you know, people say, well, how, is, how do we have racism in Alexandria? And we're so diverse. And I say, I live right down the street from Duke Street, where we had the largest slave trade in America, in Alexandria. So how can we, we are born and bred racism in this city. So if you think it doesn't exist, then you're wrong because it was bred here. 
Like, and it was, and it's still here. The slave trade center is still here. It's still brick and mortar, still here, right? And um, I try to bring that up all the time. I think the advantage I have in Alexandria is that I'm from here. This right. is my hometown. I was going to ask you about so that. Yeah. I constantly tell people, you ran all the other superintendents off, but you can't kick me out of my You can't kick me out of my house. And I'm a product of a school system. So you can come at me all you want. I have firsthand experience as a student. I was born in this city and I'm going to be buried in this city. So even when I'm not a superintendent, I'm still going to be buried right here in Alexandria. This is my hometown, right? And I feel that I have an advantage, but I hope other people will have the same kind of courage to begin to talk about, you know, their historical historical context. We use the book Building uh, the Federal Schoolhouse in Alexandria. It's a book written by Doug Reed, and it talks about our um, history in Alexandria City Public Schools, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It goes through the whole segregation to how we integrated to the fact that, you know, we named our only high school after the biggest segregationist and bigot in the country. That led to us changing the name of T.C. Williams because people got the history. You know, once they had the history, we didn't have to do a petition to try to change the name. It was easy. We had really not a whole lot of opposition about changing the name once we educated people on who Thomas Chambliss Williams was, who said, over my dead body will we have black and brown children with their white counterparts in school. You know, yeah, but, all right. that's how we got it started. So, Greg, and, and I just want to push you a little bit on this, right? Because I want to know more explicitly. So I love the history. I did that when I was in Stanford, right? I went back into, into historical documents from the 60s. And I'm like, I'm not just this crazy new guy. Like, there's a history and legacy here we got to undo. But, right, that's history. And a lot of people are like, oh, wait a second. But don't you remember, you know, Jamal, who was valedictorian last year, and he's a great kid, and he's going to Harvard, or, you know, we have kids, you know, we have all these black and Latino kids who, who are doing well now, and, and that's, that's historic, you know, that, that's history, but, but we don't do that anymore because we all live together, and blah, blah, blah. So how do you go from the, the historical examples to say, you know, here are the actual examples right. yeah. in our schools right now, other than the names? Most, most people's history is not with the Hispanic valedictorian and all black people going up to be to do great things. Everybody still have academic disparities right now. So what we're able to do is then we and we use what we call a data workbook. We pulled our data workbook to drive our strategic planning work to be very explicit around the academic disparities, the disproportionality that's happening within our school divisions, the practices that are actually perpetuating some of these disproportionalities. So then we can tie, okay, we started this TAG program in the city of Alexandria in the late 60s, early 70s, because white people wanted their kids taken out of the general population. We go into 2021, and guess what? Majority of our white kids are in TAG, and they're being pulled out of the general population. Let's talk about this correlation here, folks. This was our history 50 years ago. It's still happening today. Let's talk about it, right? You got to draw that line. You got to draw that line. You have to actually bring those connections in because people, you know, delay person is not going to really understand that until you bring it to them. Mm -hmm. You know, like I always say, you can take a, a horse to the water, but you can't make a drink. But guess what? If you give the horse salt, he or she will drink. People don't know that. Salt will make the horse drink the water. Well, guess what? We got to bring salt into the picture and that is data making the connections so that people can't avoid it any longer. It forces you to have to now take action. And when you do it publicly, how can you not 
do something about it. Mm. So Jen, you, when you were in Madison, you start like, you were very clear. You started Black Excellence Agenda, right? You were very, very clear. You, you said, no, this is really important. Was it, I mean, to talk a little bit about that, about that strategy, how you led that in, you know, uh, in Madison, which is different than Alexandria. Yeah. Right? I mean, this conversation is really resonating for me. Like how, uh, how important it is to create spaces for people to understand their history, their local history and depth um, themselves in relationship to that local history and then how it's playing out in strategy. Cause it's not about blame, right? We're just trying to seek understanding of this world that we live in so that we can make it better, that there's like perseverance in it, right? Like we just have to, if the conversation never ends, it's not something you do once and you're done. And I say that because the, the, in Madison, our, our focus on black excellence, we didn't start there, right? That was five years in to the work, right? And it, it sort of emanated, right? From our, uh, the lessons that we mine from our successes and failures. Like we just kept uh, trying to understand uh, what our real goals were. We just kept trying to understand what the, the real problems were that stood in the way of those goals. And we kept kind of uh, learning through this really messy work. And, and it was really mainly through the disciplined practices, which included learning how better to center the voices of students of color, Black students in particular in the district. Um, we, we learned... Uh, how to listen to them more attentively. And over time, Josh, they, they've been saying this all along. Our students have been telling us what they wanted all along. We finally were in a place where we had learned enough together that we could actually hear them and, and make sense out of it. But what our students were telling us was that the problem wasn't the, the achievement gap, Right. The problem wasn't uh, that they needed more and more reading and math intervention, though some might have needed that, too. But they needed for us to see their brilliance and cultivate it. They wanted to be challenged intellectually. Mm -hmm. They wanted to interrogate the world around them and make it better. They wanted safe places so that they wouldn't internalize all the racist crap that they were dealing with day after day. And it changed the way over time, it changed the way we thought about the work. Mm. That, wow, maybe the way we actually had started five years ago, our, our focus on achievement gap and uh, fidelity to the curriculum and intervention, while I don't want to dismiss those things, right? They're not necessarily bad, but those things by themselves are actually harming students more than they were helping them. Um, they, we were constrained in our possibilities. So like the concept of black excellence, which again emerged, it just, it wasn't like an initiative or a strategy. It was a, a way of reframing the work and what was yeah. possible. I hope that makes sense. No, it does. And, and, and there's something I want to tease out a little bit as I move into something else, but it also, I'm just thinking, hearing both of what you both said, like there's a credibility factor, right? And Greg, you as the hometown guy who comes back into the system as an experienced, successful superintendent, you have immediate credibility there. Jen, you had to build some up. Right. You didn't you you were new in Madison. So it, it you know, timing always matters. Right. And you may not have been able to start with the black excellence agenda. Maybe you could have, um, you know, but it might have been harder to start whereas you built to it. Whereas, Greg, I wonder, 
if you had some credibility coming in, you could say, hey, guys, we, we got to do this because you would know the community. You have people there already and they know you. Right. I just wonder if. if well, it, I think if credibility I, becomes a question. I think I would have more credibility to some people in this community if I didn't look the way I looked. Right. I get negative points for my credibility because I'm black. So um, I come in and I have a black wife and we have two black children. Right? So, is, it, is it because people think that's the only thing you care about? Or? So they look at, they look at me and then I, all, my credibility goes away for many people, mm. right? No matter how much experience I have. And the unfortunate thing is that, you know, if, if I looked a little differently, I probably could, could move faster than I am right now. People can't get past the way I look. You know, in our school di division is actually predominantly Hispanic. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people didn't even know that until I got here. Mm. Like, because I started saying like everybody, we're, we're, we keep talking about black, but our largest population is Hispanic and our hugest achievement gap is, is between our Hispanic students and their white counterparts. Our white, our black students, they're graduating above 90%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> our Hispanic students are below 70%. That's our issue. And for the first time at our first leadership team meeting in um, August of 2018, a month after I arrived, that was the first time the leaders had that discussion. I'm like, well, it's right here. You know, like they had an aha moment, an epiphany at that moment. And that was the first time we started talking about our Hispanic achievement gap. So, and I'm not Hispanic and I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> so, you know, like, but people just, they make that assumption because of my color, all I care about is black children and all I can serve are black children. Um, and not everybody thinks that way, but many in our community. Well, that's the risk you run, right? When you're the superintendent of color. I remember Paul Vance, who was the first black superintendent in Montgomery County. Um, he, he used to talk about that to me all the time. He was like, look, they thought that I could be, I was going to be the savior. But what, he, they, what folks didn't understand is I had to keep the white people happy, right, as the black male superintendent. And I couldn't go too far to support black and brown kids because that's that's what they expected me to do right I'm, I'm hearing you say something similar but i'm also kind of curious greg about how you make that historical connection then which is grounded where you, you know you talk about having the slave auction and alexander and all that but then you're talking hispanic kids and latinx kids which may be a little newer so how do you is it the same argument? Is it a different argument? Is it a more nuanced argument? Like I think you... it's the same in some ways because it's still talking about the, the fact of oppression is really, really how we relate that. And, you know, because we have a high immigrant population, you know, we begin to talk about democracy, uh, you know, and how they deserve a right to be a part of our community. And because we have a high Hispanic population, we're now bringing more Hispanic educators. We don't have a problem with black educators. We have, we have a problem with Hispanic educators um, and people who are bilingual. You know, people now that I've hired, I'm, I'm looking for people who speak Spanish and that are in our, Julia Burgos, our chief of school and community relations, the job that we created. She's now, um, and a Latina, she's now able to now have a voice. They have a seat at the table, right? And that is like putting your action into into words and and that's really how we're trying to tie you know tie those two but it, it's a hard juggle you know just trying to just navigate this whole racial kind of like divide that everybody tries to avoid it's it's hard to really bring it at to, you know to the top of the list and to try to have people kind of tap into their own biases and racial racist tendencies 
that we all have for, for many different reasons, right? But having to like look in the mirror and say, I'm a racist. Everybody has to do it. They got to look in the mirror and say, yeah. I'm a racist and I need to figure out how I'm going to become an anti-racist. So, so let's talk about the conflict and the politics of that, right? Because a lot of superintendents, you know, they may not be well equipped to have these conversations. They may not believe that they should look in the mirror and, and say that a lot. And the thing, white superintendents, some black superintendents and, and Latino superintendents might think, you know what, I don't want to be only thought about that way, right? As you were describing, Greg, right? Um, or they may be thinking, you know what, I got a board, you know, because care and feeding of the board is one of the major issues that superintendents have, or I got teachers or parents that don't want, want to accept this. So you're going to run into conflict if you bring, if, if, if you bring this into the into larger conversation. So how do you deal with politics and how do you deal with the inevitable conflict and pushback that's going to come if you are pushing an anti-racist agenda, an allyship agenda, a cultural responsive agenda, and notice I'm using different language, right? How, what, how do, you, how do you manage the politics and what do you do about the conflict? I'll start on that. Wow, that's such a big question. Gosh, your questions are- I was gonna say like 25 words or less. But yeah. I know. <laughs> I mean, context matters a lot. I think that's what we were just pointing to. I honestly don't think that a black superintendent could have centered black excellence in Madison um, to start. And our team has talked about this. Mm. Uh, they needed me to do it. Right. And I, of course I wanted to, we were in it together, but I think that's important to name. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a black superintendent now in Madison who is able to take that uh, agenda and purpose and move it forward in powerful ways, which I don't think I could have done. Mm -hmm. Right. There's something about the intentionality of when to pass the baton and to whom, which maybe brings us back to our first conversation about leadership development um, that I, I just need to name for a second. But uh, but this issue of context matters a lot. I mean, you need to know who you're working with. You need to find your allies. You need to build deep, uh, not only understanding of your community and its history, but relationships uh, with one another. I mean, the amount of time that I spent as a leader just building trust, right? Especially across racial lines, I mean, was significant. Mm -hmm. I think even, I mean, I did a lot of really intentional work with my board to build up their kind of muscle and leadership capacity to talk about issues of racism, racial equity that they couldn't have done before, right? Like it, it took time and practice, especially when you're always in the public spotlight with reporters sitting in the room, writing down everything you say, right? I mean, we're asking our board members to take some pretty big risks, right? Uh, when we know what some of the backlash can look like. So, I mean, I, I just think it's really multifaceted. I think some of, I, I don't know, support networks, you gotta know, like it, it gets hard. I mean, this, even as a white leader, right? I, I, I got, I've gotten more hate mail than I can count. I mean, it's just, you know, endless. And yet I knew that uh, for the most part, I was going to wake up the next morning and be able to walk right back in the office every day, right? That was the privilege that came with it. Um, I don't know, Greg, what, what do you have to say about 
that. I mean, I think I think everything that you have said is is spot on. This is one of the reasons why I'm actually writing a book right now, um, causing good trouble. Uh, in public schools. And it's a guide to becoming an anti-racist school or school division. I'm doing it for this very reason. There's not a lot of resources out there to help you navigate this, yeah. right? So I'm trying to give our, you know, our future leaders, our current leaders, a guide <laughs> to navigate, right? Because it this this work, I mean, it is so huge that it, one, you have to accept the fact you're going to be walking into a fire. That's, you're pretty much walking into a fire with no equipment. You're not gonna have a face mask. You're gonna have to figure out how to still breathe <laughs> in this fire, you know, that's blazing. And you are risking your reputation. You're risking your career. It's all on the line. And you have to believe it that much that you're willing to do those things in order to actually see the needle move. And what we have to do, it goes back to the professional learning piece that you talked about earlier. How do you build up future leaders who are gonna be courageous and bold enough to do that, right? How are you gonna be bold enough to go out and do that? It's kind of like to have the audacity to say, I'm going to dismantle systemic racism and I'm gonna tell you this publicly and I'm going to take actions to do it in spite of what you do to me, in spite of what you say about me, in spite of what you try to do to me, right? I'm still going to persevere and make it. And you gotta be nuts, one, to do it, <laughs> to even get to that point, right? And I'm glad I'm nuts because I'm willing to put myself out there to do it unapologetically. Well, but if you don't have that foundation and if you don't, if you're not able to get up and dust yourself off and you know go at it again the next day, it's never going to work. You're going to give up. You're going to so give this up. Is where, this is where I struggle, right? Because I, like on one hand, you know, I remember what Rudy Crew used to always say, you know, you're going to get fired, so choose what you're going to get fired over, right? And I get what you're saying, Greg, around being nuts and, and all that. And I, I agree with that. But, but at what point does it just become the norm, right? Does, at what point it's just, it's just expected that if you're the superintendent of schools, if you have that privilege to serve a community in that way, you are going to address issues of equity and social justice, and you are going to have the skills, right? You're going to read Greg's book. And apply yeah. like, like there's, <laughs> well, there's also, there's a lot of really interesting things you guys are saying here, right? You're saying context matters, right? Knowing yourself and what, what is important to you and what you can do to pull people along and push people, right? You look at the data, right? Um, and, and look at your history. There's some really very intentional, deliberate actions you all are, are, are describing here, but I don't want it to be something where you got to be nuts, right? I want it to be the norm. That's right. But Josh, you know, in order for it to be the norm, our federal government has to say this is the norm. Yeah. And hopefully the Biden administration will come out and be bold enough to mm -hmm. say it, right? This is the norm. The expectation is that we narrow this achievement gap and we see not little small increments of narrowing the achievement gap. We need some bold action to do that. And it starts with how we're assessing our kids. You know, I, I keep going back and forth and I hate to bring it up, but the whole assessment component, I still feel like there's some issues with that and how we're assessing kids and why we're assessing kids and what we're doing with that data, because we're still using things that are not, you know, racially, I think, balanced, you know, for, for our students. And that to me is all, we're, we're starting off at a disservice. So we're instantly putting black and brown kids at a disadvantage with the assessment tools that we're using um, on them. Where We have brilliant people 
who may just be in certain circumstances, if they're not able to express or show what they actually do and the potential they do have. Until yeah. our country does that, you know, I don't think anybody's going to make it a priority and it's going to be a norm. As long as the country's not saying this is a requirement, this is what we stand for. So do you, have you seen any business and specifically like specific yeah. actions? And then are there any resources that you would encourage other superintendents to start with, right? Like we make the road by walking. There's no one path. Once Greg's book is out, that'll be the Bible. <laughs> like, where do you even start? So there's two, two questions wrapped up in one, but who, who wants to start with that? Good, good example of people I, out there. I'm happy to, to talk about that a little bit. I mean, I, I think that I'll say that the districts that stand out in my mind are not just making statements, right, about, you know, Black Lives Mattering or, doing professional development with their teachers. These are places that are thinking about systems, right? And how to re-examine every uh, component, right? Of the where their school system works with a racial equity lens. They're looking at their HR systems. They're looking at the way resources are allocated. They're looking at how they communicate all of it, right? Every, everything. So when I think about that, like who's thinking about the work in that way, right? They're not trying to just burn the house down. They're trying to like methodically rebuild, right? With a racial equity lens. I mean, I am a huge fan of what's been happening in Oakland over years. I think they have a really interesting, not just interesting, inspiring way of thinking about the work. It goes back to when, uh, Tony Smith was the superintendent there and, moved, and and maybe even before him moving forward. There's a tradition there of seeing the work in a systemic way that is deeply uh, embedded in community and community voices and kind of hopes and dreams, right? Like there's a, an Oakland tradition, right? Of, of black excellence that it's that is building on. So I would encourage people to look there. I'm very impressed with Chicago. I love the work that Janice Jackson and her team are doing. Maura Sweeney, who's the equity officer there now, I think is outstanding. And I think um, if you go on their website, you'll see a, um, like it'd be interesting for everybody to look at their equity tool. Mm. I, I'm not exactly sure what it's called off the top of my head, but it is. Equity tool is fine. <laughs> yeah, it's powerful, I think, um, and actually represents the real work that's happening in Chicago. Again, I think they're taking this systems view, right, interrogating everything that they do with an equity lens, with, and, and of course, a very strong focus on instruction. Um, and I've got my eye on Atlanta right now mm. um, for the same reasons. Um, you know this, Josh, uh, because I'm the co-chair of the Public Education Leadership Project, we wrote a, a note on racial equity that I'm happy to share that kind of lays out some thinking about how to do this work from a, like a systems point of view. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll offer that. But there aren't enough examples, right? right? There aren't enough. Greg, what are you seeing? Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I, I think I, I, I say second to, to what um, Jenna said, but I have a other, some other people I want to add to that. Dr. Sharon Contreras and her work that she's doing in Guilford County. You yeah. know, I mean, she was amazing in Syracuse doing the work, you know, reducing the school to prison pipeline work and, and she took into Guilford County. And you talk about a woman, a person of color and someone with a disability. She's 90%, she's lost 90% of her hearing and that has not stopped her 
from doing her work. She's amazing and also was almost tapped to be the U.S. Secretary of Education, right? At least she's been in the, in the making um, for it, which shame on them for not appointing her. I, but I, I'm not putting down the person they appoint. I'm just saying, Dr. Shan Congeris, she was awesome. Dr. Lavelle Brown, you know, he's doing his work at Ithaca, you know, a lot of work uh, in regards to um, cultivating love. He's written a book about it uh, and just his equity and transformation work that he's doing um, is, is very powerful. He's now on the circuit all over, you know, talking all over the nation about um, equity in, in schools. And then, you know, I think somebody who's a trailblazer that a lot of people just don't know about quite yet is Dr. Talisa Dixon. She's the uh, superintendent of Columbus City Schools in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is doing a remarkable job with turning around a school division where majority of the students were failing. <laughs> you know, it was no way but up for her when she took on this role. And she is already setting a foundation. Unfortunately, COVID has happened when she's still working in spite of COVID um, to continue you know, this work to, to rise the, um, the achievement gap. I'm sorry, to um, de decline, excuse me, the achievement gap, not rise it. Uh, and there's some powerful work happening in Columbus as well. And these are all superintendents of color that I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, and they are doing some powerful, powerful things that unfortunately, a lot of times people just don't get the same recognition. Uh, and I, I know it has something to do with, with the color of their skin a lot of times, or them being a woman. Yeah. Um, it doesn't get them at the top of that list. Uh, so that's going to be our. That's a, that is a great plug for our next podcast, which we're doing about women in leadership, because that continues to be an issue that we see in the ASA decennial survey. But before I let you go, I just have one short answer question for the two of you. Um, and I, I did not preview this for you, so I'm going to maybe catch you off guard a little bit. But what is the most joy that you have taken from? leading the conversation on race like where, where's the joy in it do you want to go first Craig or do you want me to go you can go, you can go first Jen uh, I um I feel like there's been a lot of joy in it Josh it's such an interesting question and pain too I mean like all of it but the joy has come mainly from I don't know there's some there's some freedom in it mm. um and I I don't know how to put into better words than that, like getting to kind of own up, right, to our racist history, to uh, make peace to some extent with, you know, for, especially for white folk, like how we've been raised and the things we've seen and heard and done and to take action, right, uh, to make change, even if we're floundering along the way. I, I think there's a lot of beauty and joy in that. Freedom in it. Yeah. Great. I think there's a lot of joy in the action. Um, I also, the joy for me, when I hear especially our students of color say, you see me and you hear me and you get me, right? That right there says it's worth it. It's worth the nasty emails. It's worth the criticism. Yeah. It's worth the horrible op-eds that people write to try to discredit, you know, anybody who's trying to tackle systemic racism. I think that's the biggest joy. They're the next generation. And just for them knowing that somebody is going above and beyond the call of duty and relentlessly working to remove barriers. I mean, that, that right there, that brings, that brings the joy. It makes it worth it. That's, that's the only way I get up every day. I got to keep reminding myself about the young people who are being impacted. Mm -hmm. Adults, they make this work hard, honestly. 
I don't do the work for, for the adults. I really don't. You know, adult, adults are not going to make me want to get up and come to work. Adults make me angry sometimes. The kids, that is what, even the kids who have challenges, because it's an adult that caused them to act the way they act right now. A lot of times we put it on the kids. It's an adult that caused some of that. Mm. Right? You know, so, but the kids are why we do this work, why we said we wanted to go into education, why we are relentlessly doing um, everything that we possibly can. So that, that's, that's what brings me to joy. All right. Well, because thank you both. And I, I always want to, you know, as you describe the work and as I know from doing the work, it's hard. You get beat up. It's sometimes you just feel like you don't know what you're doing or you're just getting attack for the wrong reasons or whatever it may be, but there is joy in the work. And, and that's one of the things we want to continue to do with this series is highlight that even though it's hard, you, you can have joy. So I appreciate that from both of you. So I want to offer two resources for folks out there and there's so many of them, but, but two pieces that have grounded me as I've explored this. Uh, James Baldwin's Talk to Teachers, his great 1963 speech. Um, I read it at least once a year. And then um, Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow. Right. I mean, just two places to start. Just, you know, and of course, Ibram Kendi's book, it's there for me. But just, just to start on your journey. So Dr. Greg Hutchins, Superintendent of Alexandria, uh, Dr. Jen Cheatham, Professor of Practice at Harvard and former Superintendent of Madison, Wisconsin. I thank you both for uh, the inaugural AASA uh, Decennial Survey podcast series. Um, I, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today um, and for the rest of you out there, please stay tuned as we continue to engage in what I hope are thoughtful and fun and enlightening and educative conversations with some of the great education leaders uh, in our country. So I'm Josh Starr, CEO of PDK. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ASA PDK Decennial Podcast Series. If you would like to purchase a copy of the AASA Decennial Report, please access links.aasa.com dot org slash decennial for more information.